The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in June 2007. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing. Today we welcome the Artistic Director of the Guthrie Theatre in Minneapolis, Joe Dowling. Hi, Joe. Hi. I guess a good way to start the program is certainly our listeners know about the Guthrie. The Guthrie has been in existence since 1963. Uh, Tyrone Guthrie's name is on the door of the theatre. Could you tell us about the theatre, how it got started? how Tyrone Guthrie was inspired to to organize the theater with other people as well, and just basically a quick timeline of, of what has happened over the last 43, 44 years. Well, it's, it's actually a wonderful story um, because Tyrone Guthrie and Oliver Ray and Peter Zeisler, three sort of great men of the theater in the ni- early 1960s, um, decided in their wisdom that the... Um, future of New York theater, particularly commercial New York theater, and we're talking back in the early 60s before there was a lot of the kind of off-Broadway and stuff that's uh, that's available now, but that it was getting more and more um, focused on musicals and that those musicals were going to run forever and therefore that the work was being squeezed out, good work of uh, playwrights and so on was being squeezed out. So they decided that they would try and establish a classical repertory theater outside of New York, somewhere in the country. And they went to Brooke Atkinson, at the New York Times and asked him to um, invite cities to apply, you know, Hmm. have theater will travel. Um, And seven cities around the country did apply to Guthrie and and his colleagues, and um, they visited them. Um, somewhere, you know, uh, he, he did not want this theater to be associated with the university. He felt that the danger was that once it became associated with the university, that it would automatically become a university theater, and he wanted it to be for the town, not for the gown, as he as he put it. Um, and so, but Minneapolis, we're determined to get it. It's a very, very wonderful. Um, enterprising community out there, and a man called John Coles Jr., who's still on our board, I have to say, um, a group of young men came on John Coles Jr.'s private plane to New York to persuade Guthrie to come and visit Minneapolis, and he did. And he um, said that the the, the enthusiasm that these... um, they weren't quite the fathers of the city, but they were the, certainly the kind of heirs apparent of uh, the, the fathers of the city. Um, their enthusiasm for theater, their enthusiasm for um, the, this really was what persuaded him. Combined with that, um, he felt that there was going to be a, a, a really terrific audience there. Boy, was he ever right. Mm-hmm. Um, so very quickly, I mean, they, they, they put the theater together. They got land from the Walker Arts Center. They built the theater. And for 43 years, it survived in Vineland Place uh, on, in Minneapolis, creating legendary productions and legendary performances. People like Hume Cronin, like George Grizzard, um, Zoe Caldwell. I mean, so many people have been there. Kelsey Grammer, uh, David Hyde Pierce, Michael Moriarty, Helen Carey. I mean, the, the list goes on and on of people who've actually appeared on the Guthrie stage, and it's quite f- phenomenal. Um, when I came in 1995, it was going through... I mean, Garland Wright had been artistic director um, for 10 years and, and a wonderful, brilliant, inspiring director he was. But somehow the choices he was making and the kind of work he was doing was not appealing to that broader audience that had always been necessary to, to keep the Guthrie kind of solvent. So we, we sort of started to look at what were the reasons for this. And one of the reasons was that, it, you, you know, the, the, the theater is a thrust theater. I mean... 
audience on three sides. And that is brilliant for Shakespeare, for classical work, designed specifically by um, Tanya Mosevich to be a... Um, a classical theater. And when you say thrust theater, not a proscenium. Not but, a proscenium. But a stage that comes out. A stage that comes right out and um, uh, is surrounded, the audience surrounded on three sides. Mm-hmm. And very uniquely designed in that it was an asymmetrical design. It wasn't all balanced. It, Depending no, it's on very, where you sat, you yeah. would look at the stage from very different angles. Very different angles. And they, they also, because Guthrie had created the same kind of theater in Stratford, Ontario, but they'd learned something of the, you know, from the mistakes they'd made there or the things they wanted to change. And one of the things was that they they didn't complete the balcony. Anyone who knows the Guthrie knows that one of the most um, important features of it and one of the best features of it, in fact, is what we call the Alpine Slope, which is this slope that goes down from the, from the back of the theater right down to the stage. So you can go from the balcony, walk around and down in the, in the auditorium. You don't have to go out a door. So it was a much more egalitarian theater than one that where you've got the balconies and all of that kind of sense of class that goes with uh, the people being in the, in the posh seats down down below, um, but the 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 issue that we discovered, or you know, in, in sort of analyzing it, was that there are certain plays, and particularly of the twentieth and twenty first century, that don't work on a thrust stage. They are far better seen on a proscenium stage because they're designed for everybody to see things from the same point of view. And as you say, you you can't in the Guthrie. You you don't. You see everything from a very different perspective. Great for Shakespeare where it's constant movement. Great for 18th century plays where it's about about the the kind of energy of of the characters. But for a Pinter, for a Mamet, for a a play of uh, even a Chekhov, it's hard. It's very, very hard. So we started to talk to the board um, about the possibility of building a new theater. Our intention was to build on the site that we were on because that would have been made, made life a lot easier. Lots of political things got in the way of that. And eventually we moved down to the banks of the Mississippi River. Well, let me ask, you've already spoken about the illustrious history of the Guthrie Theater and certainly in the history of the regional theater movement, the Guthrie is a touchstone for so many artists and, and audiences as well. The sense of place can be so important to a theater company. You, you've made it sound very easy that you mm-hmm. had conversations, you talked about it, you found some land, and voila, a year and a half ago, you opened a new theater. But what was the response from the community to, to you? You'd been there now at this point almost 10 years, certainly not as long when this project began, to you coming in and saying, I want to run this theater, but I want to run it in a different building. Well, you know, I, 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 I don't want to make it sound like it was easy because it wasn't. There, there were huge um, complications in terms of both the politics of of suggesting a move as well as the emotional response people had to the loss of, of Vineland Place. Absolutely. Um, but but we, ha- we argued the case that when they built the Guthrie in 1963, there, there, first of all, as with so many projects back then, it was an, it it was a difficult to raise the money for uh, to, to to complete the theater, and the theater was never completed. Backstage in the old Guthrie really wasn't where a first class theater ought to be. Um, we also argued, and 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 both at board level, at community level, at political level, that to be a major theater of national importance, we needed a second space. There is no theater in the world uh, of, of uh, you know, comparable um, world 
class quality that does not do its work out of two different spaces. And it was impossible for us um, to really grow, for us to develop with writers, for instance. One of the things that the Guthrie has not been good at over the 43 years of its history is developing writers and working with writers because the thrust stage simply doesn't lend itself to new work. And we wanted to... Uh, we were able to argue with our board and with our community that that this was a, a an important uh, development for the Guthrie. Um, there, there was a lot of emotion, and, and there was a there was a, a protest movement. I mean, there was a group called SaveTheGuthrie.com, and they got together and they organized protests. I think what happened in time, though, was that as we proved that both the mission that we were undergoing was not going to alter the Guthrie as they knew it. In other words, we were going to recreate the Tanya Mosevich, Tyrone Guthrie um, Thrust Theatre. We, we were not talking about changing to a proscenium. We were going to actually recreate it. We were adding a proscenium and a studio. People became a little more relaxed. And then when we started to outline the design, which the, the, the new building was designed by Jean Nouvel, uh, a French architect, um, we started, people started to get excited at the prospect of this. And, and I have to say that it's a remarkable community in Minneapolis. It's a truly remarkable um, – there's a dedication to the arts and a dedication to change and to development that I don't know that you get in, in many other communities. I certainly haven't experienced, experienced it anywhere else. So people, I think, bought into the, the fact that we were um, genuinely trying to preserve the legacy of, of Guthrie and the, and the theater – and at the same time, recognizing that to move forward and to do new things, we were going to have to have a different premise, uh, premises. And, and gradually, the protests died out, and um, we moved into our new theater. And already this year, we've reached you know, nearly 500,000 people, and our, our subscription um, group didn't, didn't drop off at all. And so we've made the transition. It wasn't easy, and it's still not easy for some people. Still not easy. Well, you mentioned just very quickly, uh, you said and a studio. You, in fact, have three performance spaces, the Thrust Theater, the Proscenium, and a Black Box performance space, which allows you to do very different productions in in each of the three spaces. And to basically have the theater itself producing pretty much year-round, I guess, with very few dark days. Oh, we very few dark days. I've always said, it's one of the sort of mantras that I have um, since I started in theater many years ago, I hate dark theaters and I hate empty theaters. Mm. I've been accused of being a populist because I like full theaters. I figure it's part of my job description as someone leading a theater that you want to keep it full. Um, but I, I do hate dark days. I think theater is meant to be shared. I think it's something that we tend in theater to become terribly precious about. We, we must keep, um, you, you know, the, the sort of mystery of how we do it all. Um, I think open the doors. Let's get let's have people in as often as we can. All three of our theaters are, are uh, going mostly year-round. It's not uncommon that despite all the planning for a new building and all of the studies and all of the research and all of the staff meetings and all of the board meetings, that when you finally get into a new building, you're surprised by things. Mm. So I'm curious, now a year in, a little more than a year in the new building, what have you found that has either been unexpected or has had made you had to rethink the way you thought you were going to operate in this new facility? It's really interesting that because you're absolutely right. I mean, you go into a new building and you think you know it because you've worked on it and been part of it for so long. And, of course, a number of things jump up and bite you in the butt, you know. Um, 
But one of the things I think that we've discovered, to go back to the point about the dark days and open, is that the theater works best when all three theaters are in operation. The flow of the audience, and we have created what we call a, a shared lobby between the three different theaters. Uh, uh, as you may know, the theater is built 50 feet in the air in order to take advantage of the most spectacular views of the Mississippi River. And there's a cantilevered lobby space that goes right out over the river. It's the longest cantilever in the world, we're told, and we believe them. Um, but it, it goes right out over the river. It, it also, um, this, this lobby bisects both the, the thrust and the proscenium. The studio is up on the ninth floor, so people have to come through that space to get to the, to the studio. So when the theater works best as a public space is when all three theaters are in operation and the audiences are milling in and there's a sense of community and a sense of engagement and a sense of involvement. And in our first season, we've tended for internal um, production reasons to open one show in the thrust, let that run, open one show in the proscenium, let that run, open one show in the studio, let that run. And we've now discovered that we need in next season to overlap a lot more in order to make sure, which will put much more pressure on our production departments, much more pressure on our box office, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But in order for this building to really, really work, there has to be a flow of people. It has to be. Otherwise, it feels empty and it feels it feels foreign. Um, I think one of the other things we discovered, um, which was a nice thing, was that, you, you know, we, we uh, the, the scene shop, the scene shop which we had off-site before, where our scenery was built, it was put into vans, transported to the theater, put up on in the stage. Um, now it's literally across a corridor. And our, I think the, the value of that in terms of the, both the quality of the work and also the speed with which we can do the work has been tremendous. To say nothing of the fact that it must unify your company to have all of the work happening together. Exactly. That separation psychologically can be huge within a theater. And that's exactly what it was. We were operating before, and one of the reasons and one of the ra- rationale that we gave for building the new theater was we were operating out of five different locations in the Twin wow. Cities. We had, I mean, all of our scene shop outside, all of some of our administration outside. We simply couldn't house everybody. So we brought everybody back under the one roof. That has made a big psychological difference. Um, so there were a number of things. One of the things we found also was that, that people um, people kind of like the, the what we call the endless bridge, which is this cantilevered um, uh, lobby. Um, but they, the, the internal lobbies were too dark. They didn't like them and they were a bit too, they just weren't um, there were very much Jean Nouvel does he plays with light and darkness and light and shadow and and mirrored images. That's that's one of his signatures. But he had created these internal spaces that were fascinating, um, but too dark. And so we had to change the lighting on those and things like that that we we found we 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 needed to do. We we've got a, an, an issue with because of the three different theaters. How do we centralize a green room which we haven't yet quite solved yet so that the actors backstage have a chance to spend time together even if they're in different shows. It all of those things were were still working out. But I would have to say, by and large, um a year into into the operation, we're extremely happy with the way the building has uh, served us. And I would imagine bringing all those services from five different locations under one roof and not having to run vans, run trucks with scenery and all that results in day-to-day operating cost reductions. You can save money by, by doing that. Well, yes, that was the theory. Yeah, the theory. Um, <laughs> the theory was that we would save a lot of money by not having to do all of those things and not having to have leases. But, of course, then you build a, a, a building which is f- literally four times the size of 
what our old building was and your utility costs immediately go up and of course the staffing has to increase because you've got to have security more, more security staff you've got to have more front of house you've got to have more um, so it, one balances the other out quite neatly <laughs> I have to say uh, the savings didn't quite work out the, uh, the way we'd hoped <laughs> Well with three stages you certainly have an opportunity to present a lot of different types of, uh, of, of, of material and just looking at the 2006-2007 season you go from Tom Stoppard to uh, Jeffrey Hatcher's work Neil Simon's work you have Tennessee Williams, William Shakespeare, even musical comedy in 1776, mm-hmm. a very varied uh, uh, program, which has been the case for years with, with Guthrie. It's, it's, it's not the first time that's happened, obviously. So how do you, in your new theater, then decide what, as the artistic director, what you're going to present in a season? Well, I think it, 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 again, it varies from year to year what, what's sort of coming up and what's bubbling and, and boiling. Um, in this first season... Um, we, we, I made a very conscious decision that we were going to um, both broaden the repertoire because we, we did want to bring um, some new work into the into the repertoire. But we were also um, wanted to make to make certain that audiences felt that the Guthrie was not not. By the very fact that we were moving from one location to the other, didn't mean that Guthrie was changing. You know, it's the same family just moving to a different home. And so Shakespeare obviously had to be part of it. And we're currently playing The Merchant of Venice, which has been fascinating in terms of the response to it and the way in which it's being received by the community. Um, we also did uh, Alfred Urey's play at Gardo Mine, which had had a, a life before at Hartford Stage. And then Alfred rewrote it um, completely for this production. It was directed by Mark Lamos, and we had a really a, a wonderful... So in, here was a play about a, 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 a 19th century situation where um, the Vatican literally kidnapped a Jewish child because he had been baptized by a, um, a serving girl uh, and raised him in the Vatican. And his par- the play is about his parents sort of fighting to get him back. And in the same season, we're doing Merchant of Venice. So there's a sense in which we're trying to address big issues, issues that I think um, we would want to get more community engagement in, issues of racism, issues of prejudice, issues of bigotry, and so on. Um, So we were choosing the work to not just hopefully be good productions on the stage, but also to start a a community dialogue, and and, and we've done that. You see, we've, as well as the three theatres and our three rehearsal rooms, we have four classrooms, and we have created an opportunity in those classrooms for uh, community dialogue and discussion. And so those were the reasons. And then um, we decided on the Neil Simon play, and, you know, we we got an enormous amount of local criticism. I mean, the newspapers were just going berserk about this. How dare the Guthrie do Neil Simon? I I was flabbergasted, to be quite honest, at the response, you know, to my mind, Neil Simon is one of the most interesting and prolific and and fascinating writers, particularly in those plays he wrote after Brighton Beach Memoirs right through to the present day, where he started to mine his own life and his own experience as opposed to simply um, kind of the boulevard comedies of the earlier years. And, and you talk about Lost in Yonkers. Lost in Yonkers. Yeah. And Lost in Yonkers is, I think, um, a, a play that, again, in a context of community discussion, raises all sorts of questions about um, immigration, about the, the assimilation from uh, one culture to another. And 
we had the great pleasure of having Neil uh, Simon out to do a, an in conversation, which I did with him, and, and and it was just wonderful to have him, and he was he was fantastic. Well, of course, the production goes on; it's a huge success, and then the local newspapers changed and gave it product, made it production of the year. So, but well, what was the objection to doing? The objection it? was the fact that Neil Simon oughtn't to be at the Guthrie; that he, that he's a Boulevard writer of commercial um, plays, and the Guthrie ought to be doing Shakespeare and Marlowe and Ibsen and and, and Chekhov. And I said, well, come on, guys, you know this doesn't make any sense. We're in a American theater. We've got to sort of also embrace the American repertoire. Well, as you say that, it calls an obvious question from your accent, which <laughs> is, the Guthrie is an American theater. You come to it as an Irish native and someone whose career was forged in Ireland. How does that aesthetic that you grew up in, and we're going to talk more about your background in a minute, but, but how do you adapt to presenting work for a different audience, a different culture than the one that you were brought up in? Well, I would also say that Tyrone Guthrie was Irish. And That's true. There is a history <laughs> at the Guthrie of, of not being led by Americans. By Americans. Michael Langham was uh, was British. Uh, Livio Chulier, Romanian. In fact, Garland and um, Alvin Epstein were the only two um, American artistic directors so far. Um, and there have been seven, so only two American. Uh, two Americans. It was Douglas mm-hmm. Campbell as well, and and uh, Guthrie himself. But, but what's your approach? But, to but, it? No, but so I, I think that, that in some ways, um, I, I've just done a production of of Glass Menagerie, and in some ways, people and 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 I'm very proud of this production. Harriet Harris played um, Amanda and. Uh, Randy Harrison, young actor of great skill, played played Tom, and we did a slightly different thing. We 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 created an older Tom and a younger Tom, which allowed us to make the play much more about the memory uh, of an older man looking back. So the narrator, the narrated part, stood outside, and he was actually watching his. He younger was watching self. his younger self, um, and Richard Hoover um, did a set design that was quite magnificent. So we opened on a on a on a bare stage uh, and gradually this tenement in St. Louis sort of s- uh, assembled on the stage as the older Tom remembered back to what it was to be in the Depression and to be at the time. Now, um, many people who saw the production um, and it was a big, big success for us in the Proscenium Theatre felt that because I came to it perhaps somewhat you know, not brought up with this in the same way that I was brought up with O'Casey and Singh and, and, and Friel, um, came to it with a slightly more um, objective look at a great American classic. And, and the same was true when we did Death of a Salesman a couple of years ago with uh, Peter Michael Goetz playing, playing Willie Loman and Helen Carey playing uh, his wife. Um, and, and I think that that's sometimes valuable. It's, it's really sometimes valuable for me to see Irish plays done by American writers. And I think it's very valuable for, particularly with those great plays of the 20th century, the Arthur Millers and the, and the Tennessee Williams, to actually, people have become terribly familiar with them, um, to actually take a step back and look at them from a different perspective. And I think somebody coming from outside can help to do that. The other thing I would say about sort of planning a season and being part of the American theater, I mean, the, uh, I am, of course, the artistic director, and I therefore have the final say, but the, I'm surrounded by an enormous number of really um, wonderful artists and directors and, 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 and so on who um, have their point of view, and their point of view is, is very often um, expressed. But the Guthrie will never be a solely American theater. It's always, from its foundation, seen itself as being part of that European tradition of the great 
great plays of Shakespeare, of, of uh, Ibsen, of Chekhov, and so on. And, and so the balancing act between that great classical traditional literature that I don't think we want to abandon at all combine that with a more contemporary work and you know obviously we did Arthur Miller's um, Resurrection Blues as a world premiere now it 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 has had a sort of a checkered history since but David S. Bjornsson directed it for us and it was a huge success for us and I find it extraordinary I'm to get a little contentious here I find it extraordinary that Arthur Miller's last two plays, Resurrection Blues and Finishing the Picture, have never been seen in New York City. If New York City sees itself as the center of American theater, why would it, some producer, either, either an off-Broadway or a Broadway producer, not want the audience in New York to see the, one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, their at work. I can't imagine a situation in Britain where a Tom Stoppard play or a, or a Harold Pinter play would not be seen, that it would not be produced. I just can't imagine that situation. Or in Ireland, a Brian Friel. Why is it that somehow or other Arthur, who I think was one of not just one of the great theatre geniuses of the 20th century, but one of the greatest figures in terms of both his um, his writing and his the, the the stances he took. Um, why is it that New York doesn't see it as a responsibility to actually see all of his plays, whether they're flawed or not? Because I know that those last two plays were certainly flawed, but they're very interesting plays. Well, some other artistic directors of other regional theaters have said that one of their goals is to develop a product at their particular regional theater with the idea of transferring eventually to New York. Is that ever one of the considerations when you develop a Slayton? Would you do an Arthur Miller play, for example, that has not been done in New York with the idea of maybe eventually moving it to New York? No. Uh, no. We're not there to be a feed for New York. And that was very much Guthrie. That that goes back right to the early years. I mean, Guthrie set the theatre up to be an alternative. Now, he did bring a show to New York. <laughs> he brought the House of Atreus in 1969. There's also Arturo Uli, wasn't it? Did Arturo Uli play in yeah, the, New played York? Yeah, they played in New York. I, did, I didn't like, like, like two weeks, so if you blink, yeah. you missed it. Like 68, uh, yeah. 69. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, I hadn't realized But they were that. limited runs, and yeah, they were yeah. meant to only be presented in limited, limited runs. runs. The Guthrie, actually, in its history... It's it, one of its forays into commercial theater proved very problematic under Michael Langham when they tried to move when the move of the musical of Cyrano That's right. with Christopher Plummer and Mark Lamus and in fact the commercial producers fired Michael Langham from the show while it was still at the Guthrie <laughs> and I, I think that probably uh, <laughs> t- definitely had an effect yeah, on, on the that, commercial uh, aspirations in people at the Guthrie I would think so and I would think that it probably would make uh, somewhat jaundiced point of view about transferring shows <laughs> if the artistic director is going to be fired before the, the thing goes going. Um, but to answer your question, n- no. I mean, if, if we have a show that uh, someone comes along and says, not that it happens, we rarely get people from New York to come and visit us, which is, a, again, another little bugbear. But um, <laughs> if, if it happened that there was something that we produced that people wanted to, sh- to show in New York, then absolutely we wouldn't be against that. But we're not going to design our work to be seen, it's for our local community, and and we got through. That was sort of laid down from the start, and we we followed that. Well, we've been spending appropriately a lot of time talking specifically about your work at the Guthrie but let's let's go back now and learn a little more about you and what ultimately brought you to the Guthrie. Um, you had an eighteen-year tenure in various positions at the Abbey. How did you first come to the Abbey Theatre, which certainly is is the major company in in Ireland? Well, I was. Uh, uh, 
a young actor. Um, and, and from childhood on, I, uh, n- not professionally when I was a child, but certainly I was starstruck and stage-struck and wanted to be an actor. And, and uh, when I left high school, it was kind of obligatory that I would go to university, but I s- sort of made a pact with my mother that if I went to university, I would also be able to go to the Abbey School of Acting if they'd have me. And uh, the deal was done, and, and, and I got into the Abbey School of Acting as a student in 1966. Uh, and while I was uh, there uh, in 66, um, 67, um, I was invited by the company to, to join the company uh, straight out of the school. Um, and so I maintained my university career while also earning my living as an actor. I think I must be one of the few people who've put themselves through university by <laughs> by, by acting. <laughs> but I did. Um, and I left college in 69 and then became full-time completely uh, an actor at the Abbey. Um, and, and, and at that time, and indeed, uh, for many years later, that was the only ambition I had, was to be an actor at the Abbey. That was the only that sort of seemed to me as a young Irish person growing up in, in, in Dublin in a somewhat more depressed time than the country is going through now, um, the height of, you know, one's ambitions to get to be on the Abbey stage. And I played with the Abbey Company for some years. But in the, in the meantime, I started to develop an interest in directing, and, and I was encouraged to do so by some wonderful people at the Abbey. Um, and the, 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 there were a lot of changes. The Abbey had moved into a new building. There were a lot of changes going on. So... If you happen to be in the right place at the right time, you tended to get promoted. I mean, you tended people would look and go, "Whoa, well, let's." Will you do it? And you say, "Yes, I'll do it." And I was brash and enthusiastic and and uh, very young and and very willing. Um, so I formed a theatre and education company, which was called we called the Young Abbey, much to the annoyance of some members of the company who then felt they were immediately the old Abbey. But but they were, and we were, and so we were a lot of young actors who were kind of really bursting at the at the seams to do more than was available to us on stage at night and in, in the place. So we went out to schools and we did an outreach, and it was the first time there had been anything of that sort at the Abbey, and we um, we developed a whole relationship with young people, and and then. For Really shortly after that, I was asked to run the Peacock Theatre, which is the second space at the Abbey. Um, I was 22 at that point, and uh, I did that for a couple of years and reintroduced Shakespeare into the Abbey, which had not been there since 1927, um, created a young company in the Peacock, developed new musicals. Why wasn't – Why had, I have to ask, why hadn't there been Shakespeare? Was there, was there just a feeling against it? Yes. That, that that was an English playwright yes. and you needed, yes. they needed to be doing the Irish playwrights. Yes, absolutely. Okay. There was a prejudice uh, against Shakespeare because there was a feeling that somehow or other uh, we needed to be not only developing Irish playwrights but developing playwrights in the Irish language. It was the Abbey, the Abbey history is fascinating but it's also um, a history of, of, of nearly 40 years of stagnation from the end of the 1930s um, because after Yeats had died and, and Lady Gregory had died, the Abbey was put in the hands of bureaucrats and the development of the theatre really, it, it did stagnate. So the history of the Abbey is quite interesting because the early years were blazing successes and you had John Millington Singh and you had John O'Casey and you had all of that wonderful kind of history and then 40 years of absolute uh, stagnation, including, of course, O'Casey refusing to have his plays done there, and um, a, a lot of those kind of things. By the by, the by the seventies, that whole 
grip was was fading away i mean of the of the bureaucratic and the kind of nationalistic and the and the narrow uh and so when i said well you know we've got a young group of young actors and the only way we're going to really develop is if they do shakespeare because shakespeare is without question um the greatest test for an actor and and we did a number of shakespeare plays they were very well received um, and then I ran a touring company. I was asked by the the the, the it was a touring company called the Irish Theatre Company, um, which had been set up by the government specifically to bring theatre to outside of Dublin. Because at that point, there was no Druid Theatre, which there is now. There was no um, uh, theatres in Cork or in in Galway or or, or uh, uh, Limerick and so on. Um, so they set up a company designed to tour, and I was asked to run that company, which I did. Um, for a couple of years, and then um, uh, uh, almost immediately, I joined that company. I was asked to come back to the Abbey as artistic director. At that point, I was twenty-eight, hmm. so I started at the Abbey as the youngest ever artistic director. And when you became the artistic director, that what, what then was your mandate? What were you supposed to do, and what did you do? Well, the the mandate really was to keep the doors open because mm-hmm. at that stage there was a sort of a kind of one of those perennial crises that happen <laughs> to <laughs> theaters. Um, but what I did do was uh, really um, go back to the kind of original um, principles of the of the Abbey, and that was the creation of new work, and uh, brought in a number of playwrights, including, uh, I mean, Frank McGuinness was was probably the most um, well known of the playwrights that, outside of Ireland that we brought uh, to the fore. But we did a number of plays, and and also then back reintroduced uh, more. Again, continuing with Shakespeare and more of the sort of classical, so that it balanced between the Irish literature of the OKC seeing Brian Friel, of course, was was uh, I did a n- large number of of Brian's plays and Hugh Leonard and Tom Murphy and Tom Kilroy. So we were sort of all these major Irish writers, and then encouraged a whole new generation of writers. So it was mostly about new plays the years that I was at. So it was to create new Irish work as new opposed Irish to work. new work. Yes, new Irish work, yeah. because obviously it's the Irish National right, Theatre right, right. funded by the Irish um, um, taxpayer. So it's essentially about about Irish work. And and my point earlier about the fact that they were closing their eyes to, uh, you know, they, they, the only writer that they would do outside of the Irish writers in those years was Eugene O'Neill, because, of course, of his strong Irish connections. And they did some really wonderful productions of O'Neill. But um, we opened the doors to a lot of other things as well the years that I was there. But by 1985, you left already. You you got this job young, and you left it young. I did, yeah. It, was, it was quite a... Uh, I, I had a series of um, altercations with the board while mm-hmm. I was there. Um, the board of directors of the Abbey is very different to an American board of directors. American board of directors are there to support the work of the uh, of the institution, to finance and fund it, and to and to find ways of um, developing you know the community interest. At, at the Abbey, it was very much a political board. It was a board of eight people, two of whom were appointed directly by the government, one of whom was uh, a staff member and one of whom was a, an actor's representative, and the others were a, were a self-elected body. Who So it was a very political group of people. And when I joined the Abbey as artistic director in 1978, it, the position of artistic director really, um, uh, you had to submit every single play to a, for approval by the board. The process was endless and was just tiresome in the extreme. We changed that and shifted that, but that took a huge battle. So there were a series of battles where individual board members fought against some of the reforms and the changes. And then, obviously, I was building up enemies because I was fighting them 
uh, pretty hard on all these issues. I felt if you appoint an artistic director, then you need to allow that artistic director to do his or her job and not to uh, constantly second guess and be and, and, and the constant strain of that really took away from the work in the theatre. Um, it eventually ended up in a major confrontation where they were starting to dictate who could be in the plays and I mean it got to a stage where I just said to them ladies and gentlemen if you want me to continue as your artistic director you're going to have to listen to these following points and these are the things I'm going to need to be doing and they said no and I said okay So you you. went from there to become the managing and artistic director of Dublin's oldest commercial theatre, according to your Mm. bio, which seems Mm. like a shift, the Gaiety. (laughs) And so what kind of work were you doing at the Gaiety? Well, it was was an interesting time in in Dublin history because it was... was the 70s and the 80s in Dublin were times of Great Depression. I mean, we, we, we were exporting people by a the... A great time to go into commercial theatre. Yeah, exactly. We were, we were exporting people. There was, you know, emigration was just rife. There was an inflation rate of God knows. I mean, it was, it, it was a terrible time. I mean, when you look at Ireland now, it's transformed. But, but in those days, it was tough. Um, but one of the interesting things was that, that uh, a, a company decided to put, uh, at that time, a million Irish pounds into the gaiety to refurbish the gaiety. And it was a commercial theatre where I had actually seen the first shows I ever saw as a child I had seen at the gaiety. And I'd seen first seen Brian Friel's Philadelphia Here I Come there when I was 16 years of age. And it had absolutely persuaded me, that play, that I wanted to be in the theatre. It was out without a question. And I kept going back and seeing it. Eventually, I went so often that uh, the girl at the box office actually said to me one day, you know, you don't have to pay anymore because you've paid enough. <laughs> and she slipped me into the back of the theatre. You got, you got I, the bulk I, rate. I got, I got the bulk rate. Um, so I had a great personal, emotional connection with the Gaiety Theatre. Um, and when this uh, company uh, put the money into it, and I had just left the Abbey, um, the chairman of that company came to me and said, would I run it for... Um, a couple of years, and 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 I said, well, I will, and provided I can do the kind of work that I do, rather than, I mean, I, I'm not going to be good at, you know, bringing in musical acts or doing whatever. That's not me. So if you've somebody who can do all of that, and we did bring somebody else onto the board who was very good at all of that, I will do the sort of work I do. So the first play I did at the Gaiety, you know, uh, that time it was um, a 1,300-seat house, old Victorian house. The first play I did was Death of a Salesman with uh, Ray McAnally. And the second play, for all sorts of obvious reasons, was Philadelphia, Here I Come. And we went on to do a series of plays and musicals, some of which were great successes and some of which weren't. Um, I wouldn't say that my time at the Gaiety uh, was... it. You know, it was one of those times where I was a little a little like a, like a, a fish out of water. I, I wasn't as comfortable in the commercial as a commercial producer, though I formed a company with two colleagues to produce plays, um, which we then fed into the gate after I'd left it. Uh, and that I was much more comfortable in because I could have an artistic control and I wasn't worrying about how do we fill next week and what act is available from the UK or what act can we get. It just wasn't me. I wasn't, I wasn't very happy with that. But what I did do there, which was something which is a, a lifelong passion of mine, um, which I've carried through into the Guthrie, was to form a training program, to start a training program. There was no full-time training in Dublin at the time. Nobody in Ireland could... Uh, from the, uh, no, there was no full-time acting training. Well, you had mentioned the Abbey School of Acting that you had gone to, but that was not a full-time program? No, that was... It was a... Um, you know, you went in 6 o'clock in the evening and 
sort of was there till nine and then on a Saturday you'd get, get a class or two but it was very much a part time thing um, and not very good and not very good so in, it, there, there had been back in the 1940s a gaiety school of acting um, and so we, I, I revived that and um, when I left the gaiety I bought the school and set it up as a separate um, a separate entity. Hmm. Well, we've been talking about uh, you being the artistic director now at the Guthrie and earlier at the uh, the Gaiety Theatre at the Abbey Theatre. Artistic directors wear several hats. One is politician dealing with the boards. One is an executive running the, the program and all that. But also as a director, you've done a substantial amount of directing both in the United States and elsewhere. Hmm. Let's talk about about directing a little bit. Sure. What, what what kind of shows have you done and, and, and what do you enjoy doing as a director? I love working with actors. I absolutely love the time in the rehearsal room. I I have a kind of... I, I love when that door closes and you're there and all of the other things you've talked about as an artistic director, you know, go out the door and all you're working on is the text. Um, and, and some of my favorite things to have done... I, 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 I obviously have a great love for and affinity with the Irish repertoire. I grew up with it. It's part of my culture is part of my heritage it's it's who i am so working on brian freel's plays for instance i mean i've directed aristocrats the first production of that i've directed uh, faith healer which we did in after it had failed on broadway with james mason and brian came back rather dispirited about it because he believed and i think he was right that it's one of his masterpieces and 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 uh, it had failed on broadway um i think put into the wrong theater and some bad casting and so on. And I said to him, I was running the Abbey at the time, and I said to him, let's do it in the Abbey. Let's do it in the Abbey. And he was nervous about that because it's a small, three, you know, three sets, monologue, four monologues, three actors. But we had this wonderful actor called Donal McCann, and Donal and I had worked together a number of times, and, and, and he was a difficult man, Donal. He had a lot of demons, but but he was a kind of acting genius. And, and he played Frank Hardy, the... Um, the major role in that and it was an extraordinary performance and that became for me one of the signature productions one of the productions that we we, we took it to the Royal Court in London it was a huge success there we took it to Long Wharf and eventually um, it was due to come into New York and Donald got ill and it, it didn't happen and I'm so glad that last year it did make it to New York with Ray Fiennes and, and was a big 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 success and that it was deservedly so because our production which had been you know, we, we, the last time we did it was in, in 1990. Um, you know, it was long enough for people to have forgotten Donald's performance. So something like that, like Faith Healer, which was working with Brian, who's kind of like a, been a mentor and a dear friend and a, and a wonderful, just a wonderful spirit in Irish theatre, um, working with Donald McCann. And then when I left the Abbey, and, and, and my years in the Abbey, I did some, I think, some interesting work, but I don't think my work as a director there, uh, I was too preoccupied with all of the other um, things. So my work as a director there always felt like it just didn't quite get to where I wanted it to go. It did with a play like Aristocrats, as I say, Brian's uh, Friel's play, and one or two others. But it wasn't. I wasn't as I wasn't firing on all cylinders by any means when I was running the Abbey as a director. Um, so when I left the Abbey and now was sort of free of that uh, burden of political and administrative and financial and all the other things that were just nightmares every day there. Um, I was liberated to do some some work. And again, I mean, the Gate Theatre in Dublin, 
um, offered me fantastic opportunities. Uh, uh, Michael Colgan, who runs The Gate, is a really remarkable producer. And the day I left the Abbey, he called me up and said, so what do you want to do at The Gate? And, and one of the things I wanted to do was Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock. And that was a production we did in 1986 that, for many people in Ireland... Um, redefined the play. The play had always been seen to be about the the war of independence and the um, uh, the, the civil war, rather, not the war of independence, the civil war that followed our independence in Ireland. Um, and it was about that in some ways, but much more when you actually analyze the play, it's about poverty. It's about the long, the, 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 the uh, appalling effects of long-term unemployment on the human psyche and how that destroys relationships. And so shifting the play around and making it about those issues actually made people see it in an entirely different way. And in fact, I mean, the, the, the reason that I'm sitting here today is because of that production, because we brought it to New York in 1988 um, as part of the New York Festival of, of Theatre that was around at the time, Marty Siegel's um, uh, brought it there. It, it, it was sensational. I mean, we had a three-week run. Nobody saw it because it was only three weeks. You couldn't get a ticket to, to get in. I, I had the greatest joy. Uh, one of the great joys of my life was getting a call from Bridget Ashenberg uh, to say, Arthur Miller wants to go and see your play. Can you please get him a ticket? <laughs> I mean, to me, you know, c life could not be more perfect than to be offering <laughs> Arthur Miller a ticket to my play. But anyway, Zelda Fishhandler of the arena stage in Washington saw that production. And being uh, she, she being the, the wonderfully persistent and remarkable um, theater person that Zelda is, she called me up and said, would I do it in the arena stage in Washington? And I said, no, absolutely not. I've done it with an Irish cast. I can't do it again with an American cast. <laughs> she kept on and on and on, and eventually I did. And that started my American career. Well, it calls an interesting question, because for someone who had such enormous early success in Ireland... It is interesting to see that you then gravitated to America, not to London. Was that a fluke? Was that, again, this, this Irish versus English uh, bias? What, you know, what it's the... really interesting. And I've thought about that a lot, actually. How come that I ended up in America and not in, in, uh, in England? And uh, I have no real answer to that other than Philadelphia, here I come. That play, which was so much about the new world and about what was the possibilities and that was such a seminal influence on me and Brian, Brian Friel who always saw America uh, and I did the first production in New York of Translations back in 1981 in, at Manhattan 81. Theatre Club with yeah. Barney Hughes. Yeah, with Barney and that was my first outing in American theatre and Brian and I came together to do that and I fell in love. I just fell in love with American acting, with American actors, with uh, with the whole well, with New York too, but but with with the whole idea of the relationship between American actors and a director, which is different than it is in in uh, in Ireland. Or in, in what Britain. way? Well, I mean, I, I think that that with great, great respect to my colleagues in Ireland, they don't pay as much attention to directors as, as you know. I mean, Irish acting is fantastic at its best. Irish acting is wonderful, and it it's it's only in recent years that directors like Gary Hines um, has managed to become a no, I mean, a director. People talk about a Gary Hines production now. In Ireland, when I was when I was growing up and when I was uh, was uh, a young director there, nobody would have thought of that. The, the, I remember there was a director called Frank Dermody, who was a very famous director at the Abbey, who used to say the only um, 
review a director should get is directed by, and if anything else, then you haven't done your job. And that was what we were trained, to th- that the director was completely anonymous and it was all about the acting. And Irish actors tend, you know, the great Irish actors that I worked with many times, like Ray McAnally, like Siobhan McKenna, Cyril Cusack, Donald McCann, all of these actors absolutely believed that the director was simply there to sort of make sure the rehearsal started on time and that they finished on time, and, mm-hmm. and anything that happened in between was a bonus. Um, now, that's changed. I mean, Gary, I think, has been been particularly strong in changing that. She's a very dynamic, I think, one of the the great directors of our time, but she she changed the things there. But when I came to America and found that in in many ways there was a much greater respect for the, uh, the, the how a director conceived a production and developed a production, I started to kind of be seduced by that. Um, and so uh, my ambition was to get back to the, to the States. And I did in 1985 at the roundabout with the most disastrous production of Playboy the Western World ever seen in the Western world. Truly, <laughs> Kate Burton played, uh, played Peggy and Mike. And Kate Burton is, I think, uh, a jewel of the American theater crowd. I mean, just one of the greats. And it could have been the best Peggy and Mike ever. With that, her, with that Welsh background that she had from her father and her mother, with the sense of spirit that Kate, that Kate has, but we were surrounded. It was it was uh, the re, it was we went into the, um, the Union Square. We opened the Union Square part of uh, Roundabout. I've forgotten the name of that. It was a sort of Tammany Hall place, and we were the first production in. Right down off of Union Square Union when Square. they when they first moved off of Twenty Third Street. That's right. That's right. We were the first in. And whatever sort of and, and I couldn't cast the play because I was doing another play in Dublin, so they it was cast for me, which was a disaster. A lot of people in that play who didn't. I mean, I always remember there was one man, a uh, lovely man actually, but he he was reading the first lines of the play, <laughs> and his first character, and it was uh, the line was. Um, Aren't you the queer daughter that had have me coming home by the shtooks of the dead women and me with the sup taken? Now, it's not Neil Simon. It's not a <laughs> laugh a line, I tell you. And it's very hard for people who are not Irish to understand what the shtooks of the dead women and me with the sup taken. So he reads the line. Are you the queer daughter? Uh, uh, can this guy not write goddamn English? <laughs> At that point, I knew there was an albatross around my neck and that I was going to have to carry it through. The disastrous production of all time, including my apartment being um, broken into and a trip to Canada to do a lecture, not being led back into the United States. Todd Haynes was just starting at the roundabout at the time, and he and I have laughed many times since about the disa- one disaster that followed another. The biggest disaster was the show. <laughs> <laughs> so I was there in 1981 at, Ra- at Manhattan Theatre Club with quite a success with translations and quite a kind of, oh, an interesting, interesting. In 1985, I came back and did Playboy the Western World, and my agent, David Williams, said to me at the time, I don't think you're going to be back here for a while, <laughs> which was very encouraging. But but Juno and the Peacock, when it came back in 88, was the change. So I, I think it was a sort of a series of things that drew me towards America. N- never really, I've done a number of shows in Britain, but I've never really uh, felt the same. And it's nothing to do with the Irish-English thing. I have many, many um, uh, reasons to love uh, London, and, and I think it's a great theater scene, but I just didn't ever gravitate towards it. We've been talking about uh, your accomplishments in the last roughly 40 years since the late 1960s, both at uh, both in Ireland and here in this country. What are your goals for the future, for yourself personally, but also for the Guthrie? What, what do you want to do in, in the upcoming years? Well, for the Guthrie, I want to see uh, uh, us grow, develop, um, create the kind of 
two two different things. One is create a credible relationship with contemporary American writers so that the Guthrie can balance the classical work it does with really good new plays which will have a life beyond, whether they have a life in that production or a life in other productions. I want the Guthrie to be um, what, what we have termed for want of a better phrase because uh, there's all sorts of implications once you start talking national but we've termed the Guthrie a national center for theater art and theater education and we very consciously called it a national center as opposed to the national center consciously because there are other theaters around the country that do exactly what the Guthrie does and we're linked together by virtue of our status with, with the, the with, with the Lord the League of Resident Theaters and our, our status uh, with with uh, uh, actors, but we use many of us use the same actors. We use the same directors. We use the same designers, and I want to see more of a connection um, and a people recognizing that while I, I don't believe that there will ever be a national theatre for the United States, I think there's too many geographical, historical, cultural reasons why um, that. European notion of a national theatre that reflects the best best of a nation back to itself will really never take root in the United States. I think here we're about much more about cultural diversity and within a unified political framework as opposed to the the kind of homogenous quality that you get in European um, countries. So, but I do think that the notion of a national centre centres where things come to the theatre. Um, and from which where things go, not necessarily only to New York, but also possibly um, to other parts of the country. So the notion also of theatre training and developing a new generation of actors for the stage, hugely important, I think. I think it's a role that all of us in American theatre need to take very seriously. Many young people coming out of drama programs all around the country are heading straight to Los Angeles and straight to New York and not going through the theatres as they used to do, as the generation um, that when the Guthrie started, there was a whole range of actors who would come to the Guthrie for a season, for two seasons, for three seasons, before moving on. Now that doesn't happen, and we're trying to reintroduce that, and we've done that with a number of programs. So my ambition for the Guthrie is that it will continue on the road that we've set to be a national centre of theatre art and theatre education, always breaking new ground where possible, but preserving the, the legacy of the past. I'm wondering, from your perspective now, obviously here in America, but from the work that you did over all those years in Ireland, and talking about both development of new work here at the Guthrie, new work that you tried to to champion in Ireland, what do you think the state of new writing is in Ireland today? I think it's really strong. Witness how many of the plays that are produced in Ireland now make their way over here, um, which they used to do. I mean, when I was working at the Abbey in those years, it was rare for a production to transfer to London and even rarer for it to transfer to New York. And now it's almost de rigueur that any play that opens in Dublin will be seen in London and will move on to to New York. I mean, you've got the work of of people like Conor McPherson, who's now an international playwright. You've got Marina Carr, a young playwright whose work is seen now all over the world. Um, and and I think that one of the things that's really happened in the Irish theatre is, and and I take a, a tiny bit of credit for it, and back when back in those years, is that it's now accepted, completely accepted, that the Abbey will produce new playwrights and they will take the risk on playwrights, and that that was started really, um, not not started, but it was certainly 
uh, encouraged in my time more than in many other times. And I think that the result of that is a range of Irish writers uh, whose whose work um, is being seen all over the world, and the quality of that work is is rather good. And paraphrasing Howard's question, what is your view on the state of new writing in this country, in the United States? I think there's I think there are um, a number of very valuable um, new writers, new writing. Um, I, I have, and I was just talking about somebody about this this morning. I, I have an aversion to. There are too many workshops, too many playwright development workshops. It's time for theatres like the Guthrie, and this is where we've got to put our money where our mouth is, um, and other theatres to stop doing all these workshops and actually start doing the plays. I don't think any... There's far too many um, readings and workshops where which go nowhere. And and I think that there's there's there are some young playwrights and obviously some established playwrights who are... Um, who need to see more productions done of their plays in theatres so that audiences start getting used to the idea that we're going to see something different. It may not be perfect. It may not be what, you know, uh, Tennessee Williams was able to produce with Glass Menagerie in 1944, an almost perfect um, second play. But by golly, it's going to be something that we we really will have a, have a, 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 a chance to discuss and develop and talk about. And, and so um, I, I think that that while some of those places where writers can go and, and work are probably enormously valuable, I, I think there's a, an American disease um, of playwriting development that ought to be um, there ought to be an antibiotic uh, produced, and that's let's produce the plays. And on that note, uh, why don't we encourage our listeners to visit your website, which is www. And all one word, dot org. Dot org. GuthrieTheatre.org to find out more about the Guthrie in Minneapolis. Absolutely. And Joe Dowling, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. My great pleasure. Thanks, Joe. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the podcasts of Downstage Center, help us in our efforts to share the best in theater with listeners everywhere by writing a review for iTunes or for your favorite podcast directory. Thanks so much.